thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I'm going to begin to dive into what I promised last week, some theological principles that I've come to believe must serve as the foundation for living a life that will not end in a sense of futility. Like, what was the purpose of my life here? What have I handed off, if anything, to the next generation? Unfortunately, theology, the knowledge of God, is not a hot topic in most evangelical churches today. If it's approached at all, it's approached in a nuanced way through sermons related to other issues, really, but but certainly not theology proper in a, in a sense of understanding the, the attributes, the nature, the character of God. And that's a shame because as I've learned in my own experience, it's my theology, what I believe about God, that determines everything else and in very practical ways. So what I'm going to do is begin to lay out over the next several weeks the theology that I think we have to have if we are not going to live lives of futility, but it has to be put in context. And so for those who may be joining us in this series just today or maybe in just the last few weeks, I want to put this, this whole discussion for today and in the coming weeks back into the original context of why we're looking at this question of escaping futility. And, and it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. But those verses cannot be divorced from chapters and verses that preceded. Namely, where Paul is telling us in chapter 1, that our salvation is not the product of some kind of special knowledge, wisdom cooked up by philosophers or attested to by what we would consider displays of strength or power associated with saving mankind, but in a man known as Jesus who was crucified. That's what makes Christianity a stumbling block to everybody You're banking your salvation on a man that was crucified. And yes, he was raised from the dead. But how in the world, even if he's raised from the dead, does that solve all the problems of the world? And that has to be the context then for what Paul is saying in chapter 3 in verses 11 through 15, that the foundation of everything is actually laid in Christ Jesus and there is no other foundation. In other words, what God has done in Christ being the foundation of all things, not just things related to soteriology and salvation or eschatology, but all things, art, education, media, law, government, family, marriage, all of those things were preempted. Uh, You might say like the automobiles preempted the horse and buggy as the standard mode of personal transportation with the revelation of Jesus Christ and with him the mystery of God namely the Trinity all other foundations for being for for 
metaphysics, that which is beyond the mere physical, and consequently, for ethics, are proved to be deficient. In other words, their inadequacies are exposed by comparison when we really look at the mystery of the knowledge of God and what that means and compare it to other explanations of reality and the metaphysics they produce and the ethics they produce. Now, I believe I've said this before, but if so, it bears repeating, that our metaphysic, knowing what something is, its nature, its essence, is determinative of ethics. For example, knowing that we're creatures, that we're dependent for our existence and continuation in existence on a creator, that we're made in the creator's image, that informs our understanding of what we are and therefore what we're for and how then we relate to others and to the things around us. In other words, as Christians, we believe there is an essence to things, a nature of things that precedes our existence and determines the nature and purpose of our existence. Now, that sounds like a lot of philosophical hobbly gobbly googity gawk, I guess, but, but just this week I watched a six-minute video clip of Matt Walsh interviewing a professor in the social sciences at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville who teaches uh, sexuality and gender studies. And Matt Walsh asked him a question that was asked to the recent Supreme Court nominee. What is a woman? And, and the professor was really said, well, your question presupposes somehow that that's important to know for you to know what a woman is. And he said, well, I just, I just want to know the truth about what a woman is so I'd know what a woman is. And, and the professor in this discussion said, well, your question indicates that you're an essentialist. I thought, that's interesting, but I realized what he was saying that you believe there is an essence, a nature, a thing that's true about women that applies to all women. And of course, we do believe that. And at the end of the conversation, it was just funny, really. The professor said, when asked, okay, so what is a woman? He said, a woman is a person who identifies as a woman. Well, my friends, that's circular reasoning. That doesn't prove anything. That doesn't tell me anything about a woman. what a woman is. I, it, it is amazing to me that supposedly bright, intelligent, learned, studied people can engage in completely circular logic and not see that that's what they're doing. Telling me a woman is somebody who identifies as a woman doesn't tell me anything about a, what a woman is. A woman is anything or everything or nothing. I guess. So see, th th this idea of essences, of metaphysics, is important. How do I know how to treat a woman if I don't know what a woman is, and I don't know what a woman is until she tells me that she's a woman? And I may not know that, oh, oh man, this is just crazy stuff, right? But it's important crazy stuff. And we Christians have to understand this stuff. And unfortunately, there's a lot of anti-intellectualism within the church that really began in the late 1800s and is carried on today. And because of that, as Kuiper said, we make no progress for the kingdom, for Christ, and our culture. 
We just wander around aimlessly while the world is changing around us. And we don't even know how to respond to it. But getting this idea of metaphysics in my head changed the way that I see everything. And let me just go ahead and, and put this out there for you to hold on to this week and over the coming weeks. We are in a global war against being. I'm going to repeat that. We are in a global war. Not just a war up in the Virginia school system somewhere or in a CRT classroom, but a global war against being. This idea that there is an essence, there is a truth, a nature to things that is given, that is fixed, that is real. And for reasons that I think will become apparent over the next few weeks, every crazy thing going on in our world is the consequence of a wrong metaphysic, which really comes down to the denial of two things. Creation ex nihilo is the first. Creation ex nihilo simply meaning that God created out of nothing, that he spoke things into existence, as it says in Hebrews 11.3, that God didn't work upon some pre-existing eternal matter and just shape it into what we now observe. And the second is the triune nature of God. When we lose those two doctrines and do not hold on to them, then we will not understand what's going on in our world nor have any clue how to respond to what's going on. Now, how did I come to this conclusion that metaphysics in a world like ours is so important? And I get it from the Apostle Paul in his engagement with the Epicureans and the Stoics at the Areopagus in Athens that we read about in chapter 17 of Acts. Now, there's a man in a pagan culture, all right? So we should pay particular attention to how the Apostle Paul a learned man responded in that context. It says that the people there at the Aragopagus spent their days telling or hearing something new. And what were they discussing? Well, from the records of history, we have it. It was about the nature of the God or gods and the nature of things. You may remember from the earliest days, the Greeks were trying to figure out what is the the real essence of things. Is it earth? Is it fire? Is it water? Is it air? Is it some combination of those things? Because they wanted to know what the essence of things were so that they could live consistent with the way things were and not live lives of futility. And that's what we want to do too. And, and Paul comes in and cuts right to the chase. He doesn't really debate whether Epicureans are more right than the Stoics or vice versa. He doesn't debate their views of God. He simply makes a declaration, asserts that the God who made the world and all things in it, verse 24, is present with us, verse 27, and it's in him we live and move and have our being, verse 28. Now let me stop right there because this is important. Notice that Paul didn't try to prove by evidence, by facts, that God exists. He simply asserts that he does. And he made the world and all things in it. And this is consistent with the argument Paul makes in Romans chapter 1 on his way to showing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul does not try to prove, nor does the Bible ever try to prove, that God exists. It simply asserts that it's something that really all men can't not 
know and they would know but for sin and for their desire to suppress the truth because of their own unrighteousness, because they can't deal with living in reality because it would be futile and meaningless and they would feel out of place and shamed and guilt and all of those things. The Bible just simply says, if you don't believe God exists, well, you're a fool. But we spend a lot of time today on what would be called evidentialist apologetics. What is that, real quickly? It's, it's simply marshalling evidence related to things, to creation, to prove the existence of God without resort to the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that evidentialist apologetics is bad or wrong, or there's no place for it. But I do want to point out the felt need, apparently, among Christians to discuss God with others without reference to the Bible and appeal only to reason and logic is itself an indication of our times. And it's a capitulation by Christians to the way the world insists that we talk about God. Now again, this is a very practical thing. You may remember me using some quotes from conversations with Jeff Schaefer and speeches that Jeff Schaefer had made made that in the courtroom on the Dobbs case dealing with abortion, no one even mused aloud about the meaning of human life and of persons and what they were and that they beat around the bush with what he called these proxy arguments because somehow we can't talk about human meaning anymore. And we accommodate the culture by saying, okay, we won't. So what we're doing when we make these kinds of arguments is that we're really moving the discussion with our neighbor or our friend or the other person or or the debate onto their terms, marshalling facts and evidence, which is itself a fruit of the scientific revolution that we talked about in the last couple of episodes. But having proved that belief in God is not unreasonable, even if we don't refer to the Bible, we find ourselves in a predicament because we then have to bring in the Bible to explain our ethical positions on sex and marriage and abortion. But you see what we've just done? After having convinced the person that they don't need the Bible to know the truth about God, that their reason is sufficient, we then have to resort to the Bible. It's, it's really, to me, a Christian bait and switch. We say, reason's all you need, but then we have to turn around and say, but your reason isn't really all you need because the Bible says your reason has been negatively impacted by what the Bible calls sin. Well, wait a minute, if I'm on the other side. You said, by my reason and logical arguments, I can know the truth about God, but then you turn around and tell me that my reason is affected negatively by sin and I can't reason properly, so now I have to have the Bible. Well, which is it? Do you see why that's a difficulty? And then if I try to prove by the world around us that sin is real, I mean, look at, look at uh, you know, mass murders taking place and high school kids going into schools and shooting 19 people and all that. Well, then how am I going to prove by reason alone that God in that kind of world is good and righteous and all his ways are true and holy and just without having to go to the Bible? You see, we just create problems for ourselves when we start the debate on the other side's terms and not where the Bible starts the debate. 
with the assertion that God exists, and because we believe God exists, there are essences and things that are true, that there is a certain metaphysic that comes with it. Now, inevitably, when you make that kind of assertion, somebody's going to say, well, you can't prove that God exists, and they're correct. You can't prove it with a 100% degree of certainty. But here's the simple response. Well, you can't prove with a 100% degree of certainty that God doesn't exist. So, let's now look at how your system without God responds to the ethical questions before it and compare it to the metaphysics and the ethical system it produces from a belief in God. We force them back on the question in front of us. Remember last week when I quoted from Nancy Piercy? She said, it's impossible to think without having some presuppositions in place. Thinking has to start from somewhere. You can't ever start from just purely scratch. And an evidentialist approach to the gospel is opposed to a presuppositional approach that takes the existence of God as a given that we all really know. That's an example of what Mrs. Piercy said Christians began to do as a result of the Baconian approach to interpreting Scripture. The evidentialist's approach starts with the proposition that fallen man can truly know God without the Bible and without a work of God based on reason and logic. That's the presupposition it starts with. And the Bible doesn't start there. And where we don't start, the Bible starts we're going to wind up in a different place from where the Bible would have us end up. Now, as to this approach to apologetics, and, and I'm covering this because I think it's, it's foundational background material to so much else of what we're going to be covering, of the theology of God, the knowledge of God, and, and its relation to living meaningful lives that will endure and move into eternity, let me refer you to what Abraham Kuyper said about apologetics to seminary students at Princeton in 1898. You may recall that it was his remark at that time about Protestants wondering about aimlessly no longer making any progress that really launched this series. And he made his statement about apologetics in this context. So let me give you what precedes his statement about apologetics. Quote, There is no doubt, then, that Christianity is imperiled by great and serious dangers. Well, it's true today, even more so. Two life systems are wrestling with one another in mortal combat. Now, he describes these life systems here. Modernism, which today we'd say we're postmodern, but but it's still the view that there is no God. And he says and modernism is bound to build. It has to build because there isn't a God, a world of its own from the data of the natural man. And to construct man himself from the data of nature. See, that's what we were talking about the other day when we were talking about the transgender sports bill. Well, there's certain data here and we empirically measure the data and then we give it meaning. In other words, there isn't an essence until we look at all the data and then we assign the essence or nature of things to that data. He said, so that's the one side. He says, then, on the other hand, all those who reverently bend the knee to Christ and worship him as the son of the living God and God himself are bent upon saving the Christian heritage. 
So these two things are locked, he says, in mortal combat. You can't have an accommodation between God is God over all things, and every square inch is, is belongs to God, and he's sovereign over it, and man and everything belongs to him, and he's sovereign over it. There just isn't a way to harmonize those two things. And he goes on and says, this is the struggle in Europe, this is the struggle in America, and this also is the struggle for principles in which my own country is engaged, which was the Netherlands, in which he's been spending all my energy for nearly 40 years. So it was in the context of this statement about this mortal combat that his, his comment on apologetics was made. And here's what he said. In this struggle, apologetics have advanced us not one single step. In other words, apologetics has not helped us make progress. We've been making apologetical arguments for a long time, and I don't see things getting better now either, right? And this is what he's saying in 1898. He said, apologists have invariably begun by abandoning the assailed breastwork in order to entrench themselves cowardly in a ravelin behind it. Now, let's take a moment just to look at that statement. I didn't really know what a ravelin was when I read this, so I had to go look it up. And it's a detached triangular fortification that was usually built outside a castle with slopes on it. And the idea was to split an attacking force from the the main gate okay so if you want to picture a couch catcher on the front of a train it, it looks like that that was to sweep things off to the side of of the tracks and that's that's what he said we built this ravelin to hide behind a cowardly in a sense rather than defend directly the assailed breastwork now what was the assailed breastwork that Kuiper's referring to that we were abandoning by retreating to proofs that belief in God is not irrational. What did we abandon when we assumed an evidentialist approach to our proof of the gospel? And essentially, everything. That's what we gave up. Everything except that God more likely exists than not. And that's all an evidentialist apologetics can really do. Because as I said earlier, eventually you have to come back to the Bible. And so Kuiper then makes this next statement. From the first, therefore, given that apologetics is, is not really defending the life system, the, the, the breastwork that's assailed, but simply trying to prove that God exists. He says, I've always said to myself, if the battle is to be fought with honor and with the hope of victory, of course, many people today don't have any hope of victory at all. They're just hunkered down and waiting for Jesus to come back. But he says, but if there is to be any fight or hope of victory, then principle must be arrayed against principle. And then it must be felt that in modernism, the vast energy of an all-embracing life system is assailing us. See, they have a metaphysic that answers everything, and we've abandoned metaphysics and retreated to either proving God exists or soteriology. We don't have a cosmology that has an all-encompassing metaphysic that embraces all of life. 
And he said, so we have to take our stand in a life system of equally comprehensive and far-reaching power. And this powerful life system is not to be invented nor formulated by ourselves. There he's talking about the worldly wisdom, the stuff that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But it is to be taken and applied as it presents itself in history. So Christianity as a life system, as a way of looking at the whole of the cosmos, it is what we failed to really defend. You remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, I mentioned Albert Walters that said that evangelicals have in various important ways uh, limited scripture in the meaning of key words, the kingdom of God or salvation or sin. Uh, we, we've limited those words. And, and so Kuiper is saying we, we failed. And, and Kuiper is talking about this 70 years before Walters. Now, look, let, let's be charitable here. What was putting Christianity on the defensive in the late 1800s was naturalistic science and Darwin's theory of evolution. And I suspect it seemed like the existence of God was increasingly the issue, and to the extent that that was true, then proving the reasonableness of God's existence may have seemed to be the proper counter approach. But after 1898, which is when Kuiper is speaking, the questions we were skirting by simply trying to prove belief in God wasn't irrational, they got a lot harder. Questions not only about the very nature of the material world that appeared increasingly to look like it was just a machine run as a matter of pure cause and effect based upon natural laws reduced from a metaphysical meaning to simply a, a natural uh, meaning like gravity. But also... The questions got harder about the positive eschatology of hope that had been advanced by the Puritans of England in the 16th century. Because that eschatology began to seem irrational after the First World War and even more so after the Second. And, and we didn't know how to respond to that. And what was at issue? And what had actually been at issue for 200 years leading up to Darwin was something more than the existence of God, but the relation of any such God to mankind individually and collectively and to the world. We're going to run through a bit of history here before we close today. These kinds of issues were being worked out by a series of philosophers apart from the Bible. Even though some of them professed to be Christians, and no doubt were well-intentioned in what they were trying to fix or to save or to solve. But, for instance, Rene Descartes from 1596 to 1650. These years are important because you'll see this progression, so I'm just going to give those to you. But Rene Descartes lived from 1596 to 1650. He was in France, and he was trying to figure out a sure basis for knowledge, what we call epistemology. How do I know what I know? is true. And he found it, he said, in the mind. His famous postulate, I think, therefore I know I am. That's how I know I have existence, because I can think. If I can think about something, I must exist. And then Thomas Hobbes, from 1588, a very contemporaneous period of time, to 1679, who was over in England, and he was trying to find a basis for a social order, 
without reference to God and a divinely instituted and immutable law of nature. So he comes up with his idea of the Leviathan. And uh, then later, by John Locke, 1632 to 1704, who um, tried to somehow bring God back into government a little bit and, and restate the purpose of government and the reasons for government again without an expressly biblical metaphysic. And then came Immanuel Kant from 1724 to 1804 who actually really, you could say, banished God to this supernatural world about which he said the normal tools of reasons and science couldn't be applied. Uh, we, we know that reason and science can be applied in the natural realm, but we, we, we don't know if those tools even work in the supernatural realm. So it's a, it's a realm of, of faith and non-reason and non-public sort of facts. And, and then comes Frederick Hegel, from 1770 to 1831, who brought God down out of the supernatural realm and said that God was actually in the process of becoming. If you want to know where this process theology comes from, well, there we go. That God is, is pure potentiality. He's, he's not really anything, but he's, he's pure potentiality. And so God is becoming and working out himself in the context of history. This is nothing but pure pantheism, cloaked in Christian God-type words. And then finally, there was the German theologian Friedrich Schleimacher from 1768 to 1834, which is a period, again, overlapping the Second Great Awakening in America. I'll talk about that in just a second. But it was Schleimacher who tried to reconcile Protestant Christianity with the rationalism, the humanistic thinking of the Enlightenment. See, he's again trying to say, how can I make Christianity work with this godless system over here and try to accommodate it and have it make sense to these people who would otherwise reject it. And in fact, he, he wrote a book on religion called Speeches to the Cultural uh, Christian Cultural Despisers, I think it was. And, and so what, what he postulated was that, well, really what Christianity is, it's a matter of subjective feeling of one's dependence on God, of a felt need. That's really what Christianity is. And all people experience this sense of need for God. Now that's a lot of history in a few words. But the point is this. Philosophy made Darwin's theory, published in 1859, possible. Made it believable. Darwin did not make a godless philosophy of human existence and the world possible. See, we got it backwards. We think because of Darwin, we wound up with this godlessness, but this godless philosophizing was taking place, and when Darwin came forward, it was what these Enlightenment rationalist humanist thinkers said, ah, good, there's the mechanism that we've been looking for that makes our view of reality now possible, and it swept through our culture. Now, of course, a post Second Awakening Church that throws out history and all thinking about philosophy and metaphysics and scholarly learning for the simple truth of the Scripture as if the depths of an infinite, eternal God can be plumbed by unlearned plowboys. Well, we just didn't know what we were going up against or what we were dealing with. 
and and we didn't know how to respond and we lost something that was very important that was abandoned and we're going to talk more about that next week what we abandoned that Kuiper was referring to and what we replaced it with in the church that has led to this wandering about aimlessly making no progress in a sense of futility that many Americans experience particularly when it comes to our culture and seeing things improve and I hope you'll join me next week for more on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.